Fordham University professor Lynn Slater has been making a name for herself on social media. Her Instagram page has over 600,000 followers, many who are big names in Hollywood. Slater also started the blog Accidental Icon, as she puts it, for women who live interesting but ordinary lives. But this model and fashion influencer is also using her platform to draw attention to what she says is discrimination against older adults in American culture. I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Joining me by phone is Lynn Slater. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me. So you've been featured in a lot of interviews with titles like The Glamorous Grandmas of Instagram and how Lynn Slater became an accidental style icon at the age of 64. Do you think you're being singled out only for your age? That's a really good question. I think that I am because I think that we have not, as a society, kept up with how generations have changed in terms of how they approach aging. And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in the 70s. We were really challenging all of the prevailing narratives about sexism and racism and war. And so to think that we as we got older and having a much longer lifespan would sort of do aging the way that people have done it, I think I found very surprising. So, Lynn, what stereotypes about aging have you encountered that were either overt or blatant? Well, I think a very clear example is that exactly as you said, when the media writes about me, they do not write about me in the same way that they do other influencers who are younger, but who have the same level of audience, who have the same kind of monetization. Literally, I'm relegated to, in articles, to other people who have gray hair and who are old and who really are not at the same level, their Instagram is more of a personal expression, where mine is really a project and a business, much like influencers of other ages. So I think, you know, the way that makes me feel is that I'm being relegated into senior living community when I believe that you know, I would never go to a senior living community, although some people might want to, but I would prefer to stay with people of all ages. And that's sort of one very clear example of how I think this discrimination keeps happening. It's almost like, oh my God, it's so surprising that this old woman could be popular in social media. So it's almost like they're treating you as a novelty. Yes. Yes. Like, oh, isn't it cute? You know, isn't she cute? And isn't it amazing? She's really very good at technology. So, you know, to me, it feels very patronizing. And it also minimizes the skill set that I'm bringing to this enterprise that actually is why it's successful. It's not successful because I'm old. It's successful because of the skills that I'm using and the work I'm doing to develop my platform. So you, as an Instagram success, people are still questioning whether you can use social media? Yeah. And are these young people? Are they, like, no, who no, are these no, people? no, no, no. It's never, 
it's never young people, which is the interesting thing. Young people really get me. And I have a lot of very young followers because young people today are in sort of another revolution similar to the one that I was in when I was young, where they are confronting narrative and social categories. And so they're doing it at the next level. So we were doing it in terms of our sexuality and feminism, and they're doing it in terms of gender and gender fluidity and being transgendered. And they're really taking this deconstruction of categories a step further. And so they really get that age is a category. It's a social category and that it does not accurately represent a person's experience. Chronological age does not accurately represent a person's experience. And so it's really more from older people that have this kind of approach to, you know, putting me in a, in a particular category. So, Lynn, how do you control your own narrative or how advice you would have for someone trying to control their own narrative? Well, one of the things I, I've now done is I really um, do not accept invitations to participate in any kind of press or um, promotions or collaborations that focus on specific target markets like women over 50 or, you know, women over 60. And I really scan what's coming in front of me to see that it's inclusive, that it is talking across a wide range of categories. And there are a lot of young fashion designers in particular who are really starting to develop clothes that are kind of timeless and they're genderless and they can fit a, a range of bodies. And so those are the kinds of people that I want to work with. And I deliberately, even though it's giving up, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of income, I do not participate in these segregated conversations. And I want to get back to your narrative, but I uh, want to ask you to give me an example of ageism that has been a little bit more subtle. For example, some see the mandatory re retirement age of 65 as subtle ageism. So yes. can you give me an example of ageism that has been a little bit more subtle? Well, I think our whole narrative about getting older, and that includes all of our policies, all of our programs. And, you know, I'm a professor of social welfare at Fordham, and I think we need to really take on this issue of what does it mean to be older and to see it not so negatively, because we see it very negatively. We see it as, oh, you're going to become disabled, and oh, we have to segregate you out of society into these you know, segregated spaces. And there's all these implications that you don't like being around young people, that you have nothing more to contribute, and that, you know, the fact that people act surprised that I could be a player in technology, in social media, is it's both overt and subtle. 
because it really is talking about, you know, this idea that I should not be enthralled with technology because I'm old. And so I think right now, because of medicine and because of technology, I probably have 30 more years on my lifespan than my grandmother did. And for young people today and the way things are changing so quickly, it's pretty soon going to be 40 or 50 extra years. And we don't have a design for that. We don't have a way of how are we going to live together? How can we all participate in society in ways that are for the common good? Working. So, for example, my mom is 90-something, and for me, that means if I keep taking care of myself and I continue to be blessed with good health, that I could have another 30 years of working. And yet, when you have things like mandatory retirement age and you have this notion that, you know, everything needs to stop when you're 65, then you're really taking away the enormous contribution that people can make to society in this new phase of life that we're being granted. So where do you think the conversation should begin? I think it should begin when people are 25. I think we should be engaging people across all ages, first acknowledging that you are going to have a much longer lifespan, that the narratives we have created about that are obsolete, and that what should you be thinking about when you're 25 about how to prepare for what I have been experiencing as a really exciting, regenerative, passionate full of happiness time of life. So I think we have to turn it away and start changing people when they're young. Because I get a lot of comments from people who are 21 who already are infected by this notion that getting old is something to be afraid of. And one of the things many of the 20-year-olds will say to me is, oh, I've been so upset about getting older, but you're giving me a different way to think about it. And so even in how we're advocating for ourselves, we're still putting ourselves in categories. So there's all of these advocacy groups like ARP and, and everything else, but they're still putting us in a category of being older people advocating when this is an issue that impacts every generation and that we have common interests about how we're going to shape and define this new time of life that we have been granted. And we also need to be thinking about issues like sustainability because if the environment is toxic and horrible, then that's going to impact you when you have 50 more years of life. So these are conversations that are important to all generations. And to me, we should start having them immediately. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking about ageism with Fordham University professor, model, fashion influencer, and creator of the blog Accidental Icon, Lynn Slater.
So, Lynn, what should the conversation sound like, you know, when an older adult is faced with someone making assumptions about them based on their age? Well, I think it's really, you know, for me as a professor, our minds automatically, you know, because we're taking in so much information, they automatically create stereotypes. And so I think one of the issues I have today is that there's this culture of calling people out when they're racist or sexist or ageist. But the way it's being done is making people feel very defensive. And so nothing moves forward. So what I would basically do is what I do as a professor, and I would say, okay, what are you basing this idea on that getting older is something to be afraid of? And so I would help them to have a conversation about where did these ideas come from and what are they based on? And, you know, given what I'm doing, is that realistic or could you have another way to think about it? And so, again, stereotyping is something your brain does automatically. And our job is to make people aware of those stereotypes, understand where they came from, and offer them potential other narratives. So the idea is to ask enough questions to kind of uproot where these stereotypes are coming from. That's right. Because I I think what I have found is that people, because of this kind of normal stereotyping that your brain does, many, many people are not intentionally ageist or intentionally racist, though some are, but they have these stereotypes in their head and they're not aware of them. And so I think that's the big work is having people be aware that they're having this stereotype. And I had a conversation recently on social media with a model who is transgendered, who's been a big activist in fashion about this discrimination. And inadvertently, she used a very ageist way to talk about something. And so I engaged her in that kind of a conversation because in fashion, you are constantly flooded with stereotypes about age. It's very youth-focused. And so even though she was an activist, right, really making huge inroads in discrimination against trans people, she was not extending that analysis to all the other stereotypes that could be present in fashion. And so we ended up having a really great exchange, and she really saw that she could make her point without having to make a comment that she now recognized as ageist. And so I think these conversations take longer than just calling someone out like, oh, you're ageist or, you know, you're promoting ageism. I think it takes these sorts of conversations to engage people in wanting to deconstruct their thinking and to substitute, I think, more relevant, more current, more empowered narratives about everything, about all our social categories. May I ask what the comment was? The comment was there's one social media platform that does a lot of calling out of designers, and they were calling out this one particular designer as being very one-sided. And the point that the model was trying to make was 
you know, we all don't need to look the same. And what's wrong with wanting to look young and sexy and, you know, the kind of clothes that this designer usually puts out? And her point was legitimate that we should not be controlling designers. We should be letting designers give us choices as people. But what she said was, you know, what do you want us all to look like? 65-year-old tortured art professors in, you know, formless clothes. So, Mm. you know, what I basically said in the conversation with her is your point, which I completely agree with, that we should be given choices, and the choice is up to us. Otherwise, we're giving away our power. But you didn't need to make that comment to make your point, and that if you look at that, age is a very fluid category, too. And I shared my experience of sometimes my internal state is feeling very 25, even though my body is aging and is, you know, 66. So there's often a disconnect between my internal feeling and my physical body, which as a transgendered person, she could really understand. So we ended up coming to this really great understanding of each other's experience that I think if we take the time and we're thoughtful about how we engage people, that we can have much more of these conversations, which I think are really needed right now because most of our conversations are very divisive. So, Lynn, I want to get into your blog. What motivated you to begin Accidental Icon? Well, throughout my career as a social worker and professor, I've always had sort of a creative aspect to my life. And I often brought that into my work and into my teaching. Um, And because I worked for many, many years in the field of trauma, A lot of the ways that people express trauma are not verbal. And so I was becoming a little bit frustrated with the kind of limitations of how I could write about and present issues that I feel very passionate about in terms of the limits of academic writing. And I was becoming frustrated, you know, with this idea that people who read academic journals are usually other academics. So I was really wanting to think about how could I present issues in a way that would make people feel emotional about them? Because change is not going to happen if you can't get people to have an emotion. And so I was feeling like, again, I understand and I've done it the importance of research and academic work, but I think then we have to look at what do we want to do with that and what outcome and how do we use it to change society. So I thought that writing a blog and being on social media was how most people were communicating, and so it would be a good forum to begin to engage people in conversations that were important to me. And I had to do it in a different way. I did it a little bit through my writing, but mainly through the visual 
content that I was creating. And I was really performing who I was as an older woman right now. And I didn't talk about it. I just performed it. And so I found this very powerful platform. Uh, I was part of a very short film that was about microaggression. And it was on Refinery29, which is a very large media platform. And so if I had written a journal article about microaggression, a minimal amount of people would read it. But being in this film about it, it was in front of a million pairs of eyes in two seconds. So I began to really see how powerful the medium of social media could be. And so that's sort of, it was a combination of, you know, wanting to be more creative, wanting to express myself in a different way, wanting to kind of get more emotion into conversations to generate change. And, you know, I've always kind of been that way. Like every five years I reinvent in some way. So and th- it was that time. Yeah, so you're saying social media basically, you know, provided a much bigger platform for, for your vision. Yes. Yeah. And how did you come up with the name Accidental Icon? Where, where is that coming from? Well, that's the story that the press tells. I actually was at Fashion Week when it was at Lincoln Center, and it was also the first week of classes. And I, I dress very similarly for class as I do as Accidental Icon. Which is like a fashion model. (laughs) Well, not really. And that I mean like the clothes are, they're beautiful. They're well put together. It's like it's, I have not seen, looking through your your blog, I have not seen those outfits in anything but, you know, magazines that I've, I've looked at. They're impressive. Well, I have to tell you that a great many items of clothing I wear are recycled. And in my own personal shopping, I really just buy recycled clothing. But they have and a style to them. They're yeah, well, very stylish. Well, and that's my whole point, is that I've used clothes to perform my identity. And uh-huh. so that's how I've been challenging these stereotypes of age, because I dress at times in ways that people would never expect someone my age to dress, but it looks fine. So it's normalizing, um, you know, taking risks and, you know, not not wearing the kinds of clothes that are part of that, you know, obsolete narrative of, of what we wear and what we look like when we're older. So basically I was meeting a friend for lunch at Lincoln Center Plaza, and at the time that's where Fashion Week was, and I was standing there and these photographers started taking my picture and then a a group of journalists from Japan I was actually wearing a vintage Yoji Yamamoto and they came and started asking me for an interview and then the tourists were thinking I was someone in fashion and started to ask to take their picture with me And so when my friend came, there was kind of a crowd around me, and, you know, she kind of laughed and said, oh, you're like an accidental icon. (laughs) And that's how I got the name. Who takes your photos on your blog? Well, my partner, Calvin, 
who lives with me, and we've been together for 22 years. And he also has this other creative side where he does photography. During the 9 to 5, he's a cyclotron engineer at Sloan Kettering. And so we both have this kind of sort of very scientific, academic world, and then we have our creative world. So he takes a lot of my pictures. I have a friend in my building who's young. He's a fashion photographer. He will sometimes take my pictures. It's predominantly those two. In all the research I've done, I constantly see the word floating around you, influencer, influencer. So what yeah. does the term influencer mean to you? Well, I think it has two meanings. You know, one is uh, it's really a marketing device. It's that you're influencing people to buy something. And it's a very consumerist approach. To me, there's another kind of influencing, and that is what I call cultural influencing. And I do both kinds. Um, but I think that what I've probably been most successful at is influencing culture and changing the way that people are thinking about what it could mean to be older. And also, I think people underestimated the intelligence of a lot of people who like fashion. And because I am an academic and a PhD, that I kind of helped I speak to my followers like they are intelligent people, and I don't, you know, pander to them. And I'm very authentic, and I have ethics, which is, you know, I never support something that I don't really use or would recommend in my own life. So I think, I think that's the difference for me, is I try much more to be a cultural influencer. And to be quite frank, uh, you know, I pretty much tell Brown, if you expect people to buy what I'm wearing, it's probably not going to happen. If you want people to be inspired by what I'm wearing, to think about how they could express themselves as a person, and maybe you have something to offer them to do that as an individual, then that will happen. When I was when I read through your blogs, you have uh, a lot of pictures, you ask a lot of questions, and one of my favorite blog posts was called My Coat and Being Me. Uh, uh -huh. Can you recap that for me? Well, basically it was written right after New York Fashion Week. And now I am at the point where I do get invited to a lot of shows and even in most of them having a front row seat. And this past Fashion Week, it was miserable. It was cold. We had that terrible ice storm. And a lot of other influencers, we'll call them, were, you know, out with open-toed shoes and wearing, you know, taking their coat off so people could see their outfit. And I basically said, you know what? It's too cold. <laughs> I'm just keeping my coat on. But I love coats, and I have a lot of different interesting ones, some that I bought and some that designers have given me. And the irony was that every day 
I was photographed and appeared on Vogue.com for the street style because the photographer, who's called Mr. Street Peepers, his name is Phil O., he loved my coats. And so I thought it was kind of ironic that I was just wearing my coat and I was being me and I was staying warm. And that was enough for me to get noticed. I think it speaks to people in general who are trying to change who they are to be either recognized or acknowledged or appreciated. And you're saying you don't have to do that. Not at all. Not at all. And I think ironically for me, it's my complete and total acceptance with everything about me, including aging, that makes me very attractive to people. It's that confidence and self-assurance. Yeah, it's self-acceptance, I think, in a very powerful way. Like, you know, I'm not 20. I don't want to be 20. But I can still be relevant. I can still be modern. I can still participate. And really, that's my message. It's not about chasing being young and going back in time. It's who I am now and, and my belief that I have a lot to contribute still. I'd like to thank my guest, Lynn Slater. For more information about her or her blog and Instagram page, head to Accidental Icon. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.